Father God, holiness is Christ in us. This is the hope of glory. Lord, we need you, and we need you in every hour, not just the moment we had first believed, but as we walk now in the light of our salvation and as we persevere towards your kingdom everlasting. We need you. We confess. We're thankful for a songwriter who has reminded us of this great reality because now we look to the words of life in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please take your Bible and turn it to Romans and the 13th chapter of Romans. And look with me at verse 11. Romans chapter 13. And we'll start in verse 11. We'll read to the end of the chapter. We won't have time this morning to study all of it. But it will be one sermon. It will be three parts. One of the parts we'll cover today. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come For you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. We'll take time today to study to there, but then, Lord willing, next Sunday. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can be seated, please. And I would uh, remind the children, they can be dismissed at this point if they'd like. You can be dismissed to Children's Church as they go. I want to start this morning by um, giving you what I think is a helpful word picture. It's from a uh, a movie, many of you would know, it's a movie called Facing the Giants. It's probably about 10 years old, and it was a movie that was produced by one of the Christian movie companies, I think in Atlanta, and um, it, was an, it was an old football movie. I say old, 10 years, it was 10 years ago. There's one particular scene in the movie Facing the Giants <clears throat> where the coach is trying to teach these young men about perseverance and one of the guys makes a a kind of a defeated comment about their season or an opponent that they have coming up. And the coach asks this fella to come and do uh, what they call the death crawl. So he gets on the goal line, and the death crawl means that a player is going to get on all fours, and one of his teammates is going to sit on his back. And then the death crawl, depending on the coach's mood, I guess. The death crawl might be a 20-yard death crawl or a 40-yard death crawl. Staying on all fours, on your feet and your hands with a player on your back. But the coach wants to teach the player a lesson about the fact that he should take his eyes off where he is and persevere to where he can get to. And so the coach takes a blindfold and he blindfolds the player and says, I want you to go as far as you can. Don't stop until you can't take another step. Go as far as you can. And so with all the team watching, this one particular player who was a captain on the team 
gets on the goal line with his blindfold on and starts to crawl. And at one point he says, am I at the 20 yet? This has got to be the 20. He's thinking about these landmarks. These are places that he's given himself permission to feel like he's done enough. Just keep going. Can you go farther? Just keep going. And he keeps going and going. And then his teammates all stand up and they're amazed. He doesn't know where he is. The blindfold is on. And he's driving for one more yard and he falls on his stomach. And he says, that has to be 50 yards. And the coach says, take the blindfold off. You're in the end zone. He's gone 100 yards. The, the point of that story from that little movie is that sometimes as Christians, we start looking at the yard markers instead of what is definitely going to happen as we persevere in all of the promises of Christ. The kingdom is coming. And we could get into, like, well, when? What does that sign mean? And what did that mean? And how could it get any worse than this? And we could get really preoccupied with some of the yard markers, and we could stop persevering. The text we have in front of us today is a great gift from a father who wants his children to persevere. He reminds us our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Even when we're tempted to look around at all the yard markers, even when we feel this pressure to have a defeated attitude, this text is a good word from our Father about walking by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. It's a true characteristic of God's people. Christians walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, The title I'm giving to this, I hope to not be overly cute, is going toward the light. Um, So, you know, in drama, don't go to the light. I saw the light. I was dying, and that was the sign you were headed into the afterlife. Christians aren't calling each other to stop going toward the light. We're encouraging each other to keep going toward the light. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. And if you have a question today, I would, I would welcome an opportunity to give some clarification. You can text that number. Pastor Will is not in the room, but it will remind him that we are. He's on vacation this weekend. And uh, you can text that number. That's his. And uh, he'll have about 15 minutes of having to pay close attention. Maybe he's watching. Maybe, maybe he's watching. Hello, Will and Rachel. You can text that number, okay? There are some bookends. Romans 12, 13 are, are, are kind of one section. There's a big transition that happens in 14, and there was a really big transition that happened between 11 and 12. And if you look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, what you find is sort of bookends, like these, these markers. And they are basically this marker. They are a call to be people who are distinct, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the power of the gospel, by the mercy of God. So he says, besides this, we've already heard in chapter 13 that we should be submitting to civil authorities that God has placed, and we should be keeping the law a sincerity out of a a genuine, transformed heart of love. Paul refers to three things here. 
to encourage us. Listen to just these three expressions. I think they're, I think these are great expressions of joy. He says, the hour has come. He says, salvation is near. And he says, the day is at hand. These encourage us as we anticipate the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day is coming when the Lord will mark the absolute completion of redemptive history. We're talking about progressing in that history. And the apostle uses terminology. He talks about us traveling through the night. There are certain things you do at night that you stop doing when you know it's almost morning, right? There are certain things you do at night. Uh, For me, I have to set a reminder to stop doing what I did at night and start doing things that are day-like things. It's called my alarm clock. My alarm clock reminds me, all right, night's over. Stop doing those things. Clean yourself up and get ready to do day things. That's this text. This text is sort of like an alarm clock that says, don't forget, night's end. And you knew that night was going to end. And the day is almost here. So we're talking about progressing toward a completion of God's redemptive plan. The day of the Lord. Jesus Christ himself is the declaration that night will not last forever. He is the light of the world. And even now, if we look, we confess the radiance of his second coming is already casting a glow over his creation. Those who look forward to the glorious day of the Lord are marked by three characteristics according to this text. We look forward to this amazing day of the Lord. That was the the catechism we read at the opening when Jesus will make everything right. Those who worship him will celebrate Jesus is here. And those who look forward to that will have these three characteristics. You'll wait vigilantly, war valiantly, and walk virtuously. We're only going to have time for the first one. And Lord willing, honestly, uh, making time for the other two next Sunday will be challenging. We have uh, communion next week. We're not going to do communion on July 4th. We're going to do communion next Sunday. We have a special missionary guest with us. Her name is Rachel Doak. She's a missionary to um, uh, India. India. Uh, Yeah, India. She's a missionary to India. And uh, she's a relative of the Cruets. Does anyone in the room know that name, Rachel Doak? D-O-A-K. Doak? She is. She's a, she's a family member. So she told us. That's how she got in the building. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to confirm that, and it, it's true. Um, Jana Kaza was able to help me confirm that and, and her good reputation about her mission work already that she's been doing in India, and she'll be with us next week. We're taking communion, and I have three points of a sermon, and I left two of them for next week. That was bad administration. Um, but I couldn't get two of them in today. I think I have time for this first one. Christians who are looking forward to the glorious day of the Lord will wait vigilantly. Let's talk about that from verse 11 and the first half of verse 12. Are we waiting vigilantly? Verse 11, the word of the Lord says, Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than when we had first believed. He opens this paragraph by saying, 
besides this. <clears throat> Basically, if I could summarize, if I take besides this and point an arrow up, what do I point at? Love God and love your neighbor. Besides that, love God and love your neighbor, which let me remind you, loving God and loving your neighbor. The expression of our love is when we care about the readiness and the truthfulness of other people's worship of God. You say, how do I love my neighbor? Care actively about the readiness and truthfulness of their worship of God. Loving is not endorsing. Loving is not affirming everything. Loving is to care actively about the readiness. Are you ready to attribute to God that he's more precious than anything? Are you ready to attribute that to God accurately? Not have the stereotype of God and it's active. That's not worship. John 4 says worship must be according to spirit and truth. And if you love your neighbor, you care actively about how they worship God. Because that's how you love them, because you love God. You love them because you love God. You don't love your neighbor independently from your love of God. So in light of this, I love my neighbor's worship. I care actively about my neighbor's quality and accuracy of worship because I love God. In light of this, he says, you know the time. You love God. You know the time. Do I know the time? What is, what is the time? Because I confess, I think you can relate, that I'm like that young football player who says, I'll go 20 yards. I can do 20. I know I can do 20. 40? Come on. What marker are we at? I want to say, what is the time? Tell me the down marker. Tell me the yard marker. And, and the scripture says, no, put this cover over your eyes and walk by faith, not by sight. Know the time. Here's, here's what I do know. We go all the way back to chapter 12, verse 2. He calls us to not be conformed to the current time. He says, don't be conformed to this world or age. It's, it's the moment. Don't be conformed to this moment. And then here we get another one. You know the time. He's talking about where we are in the progression of redemptive history. And we kind of want to know. We kind of want to know. What inning is it? And you know what? That curiosity has led us to do all sorts of reckless things with Scripture. Because we want to know, we have this curiosity, and curiosity kills cats and Christians. And so we have this, this desire to figure out timelines and, and to figure out where we are. And, you know, look, to, I, I heard a pastor once say, if you really want to know the prophetic timeline of God, look to the, uh, what did he call it? The, uh, um, basically, Jerusalem. Uh, maybe he said East Bank. If you really want to know, Look there, and I thought, I really want to know, but I really want to find it in Scripture, not the newspaper. So he says, don't be conformed to this time. You know the time. 
What is the time? Let me, let me take you to 1 Thessalonians and talk about what happens to a church that needed to be kind of fixed because they thought wrong about the time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I would invite you to turn there. I want to read eight verses from there and then we'll skip a few. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1, the church, uh, Thessalonica was a church that got confused about the time. They started thinking they had missed the boat, like the last ship out of town had already left and they missed it and they're, they're quitting their jobs. They're like just laying on their floor in their living room going, well, we missed it. So uh, the day of the Lord came and went and we were left behind and so now we have to, no pun intended, and so now we have to just be here on our living room floor. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 The Apostle Paul, led by a spirit who cares for the church, says this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully, fully aware the day of the Lord will come. Okay, tell me when. He doesn't say that. The day of the Lord will come, and like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For the day to surprise you like a thief, you know it's coming. You are children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and helmet of hope and salvation. Then would you look down to verse 14 with me? Same chapter. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. So how do we go about living like we know the day is coming? Admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. You know the day of the Lord is coming, so operate. Like it's morning. Human history is marked by time of sin. This passage that we're studying today should not be hijacked by a pessimistic distraction. You know the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Now these things were written down for our instruction, on whom the age, the end of the age has come. Mark 1, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And Hebrews chapter 6 says, we have been enlightened, we have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. Paul simply says, you know the time. And we've been tempted to hijack that expression by saying, yeah, where am I on the timeline? 
That is not what Paul says. He doesn't say lay out a 12-foot timeline and then put a little dot where you are exactly in this moment. It's not what he says. He says you know already. Let me summarize it this way. The time he's referring to of which we are living in is this brief moment of tension between the victory of Christ Jesus that promises a glorious dawn when the darkness can hide no more. You know the time. We live in that brief moment when the sun hasn't yet risen. Yet night is obviously ended. And everything starts to glow as the sun begins to reflect, even though we can't see it yet, reflects off the vapor in the atmosphere. We're approaching the summer solstice. Sun comes up really early right now. Um, I had a view off our front porch the other morning, a little before 5 o'clock. And everything looked like it had its own illumination. The sun wasn't, I couldn't see the sun. But I could see all the effects of the sun. I knew, even though the sun wasn't here yet, I knew night had ended. That's what John says, 1 John chapter 2. At the same time, this new command that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He says, you know the time. It's obvious to you that all of this ending of the night, all of the radiance of the kingdom, is already true in Christ and those who are walking in his light. You know the time. The night is over. Um, I want to say a quick word pastorally about the expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. It's always darkest before the dawn. And I want, I want to try to encourage you to live above the potential discouragement that this is the darkest moment in human history. It is, that's not accurate. That is simply not accurate. This is not the darkest moment in human history. Uh... Let me, let, me give you two, let me give you two words of instruction regarding that. This is not the darkest moment in human history. One, um, there has always been staggering displays of sin and depravity as long as there's been mankind. As long as there's been the curse, there's always been expressions of sin. I realize that in our culture, it is becoming more acceptable to commend sinners. I know. Uh, so the end of Romans 1, Paul says, you were like this. He says, you not only did these things, but gave approval to those that do them. And I know that's happening. It's happening pretty blatantly. Like there is this commending of sinners. Like, oh, your sin is the coolest of the sins. Good job. I know that's happening. And therefore, we are tempted to think, this is the most sinful moment in time. It's, it's not. In fact, 
I'll give you the expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. But let me remind you, there was a time when darkness of sin was so real and so heavy that it was actually manifest in creation. In other words, human hearts were so dark, so depraved, and the act of the heart was so evil that it became dark in the middle of the day. That's when creatures murdered Creator. That was the darkness. So if you want to say, it always gets darkest before the dawn, that's the moment you're talking about. Calvary. You're talking about the cross. And as soon as that victory was firmly established, everyone who walks in the light went, oh, morning's coming. Sun is coming. This night isn't going to last forever. This is going to come to an end. And so, the apostle tells the people who already know in their spoken theology, you see, spoken theology, we all say the right things about Christianity. We say, night won't last forever. Wake up. But then, we hit snooze a lot. And so the apostle says, wake up from sleeping. This isn't death. This passage is talking to Christians. This isn't evangelizing non-Christians who are dead in their trespasses and sin. These are Christians in some sort of slumber, some sort of passivity, a weird forgetfulness. This sleep is a state of inactivity, a decrease of responsiveness. When I'm going to wake up my girls... Girls, wake up. And then I have to look at them closely. Are, are you awake? Like, I, they might be awake, but it's very hard to tell. Two of my girls sleep with those eye things on. I, I don't know. And I, I go, girls, are you awake? Are you awake? And then one of them will slide their thumb up and pull it up, and I'll see an eye, Okay. Come on, it's time to get up. Wake from sleep, spiritual sleep. Describing a person who's not dead in their sin, they're alive, but they display some similar characteristics of someone who's still dead. Christianity continues to grow more obscure in in our context. And scripture calls us to be doing just the opposite. Don't neglect to get together like this, to encourage each other to love and good works, and do that more and more and more as you get closer to the day of the Lord. This is a convicting quote, I thought. John Piper wrote it. He says this, All of the glitz and flash and skin and swagger and muscle and brilliance and scientific achievement, and art, and military might, and business, and industry are sleepwalking compared to life in the glory of Christ. Do you want to exist in a sleepy stupor in a dream world of this glitzy age, or do you want to be awake in the dawning rays of the age to come? Wake up, he says. So, Would you ask me, would you pray with me? Just would you be honest with each other? There are things that definitely cause us to have a certain stupor about us. 
a slumber about us, uh, a, a lack of vibrance, vital, things that distract us. They satisfy us pointlessly. Would you pray and just be honest, Lord, remove those things that cause me to be spiritually sleepy. I have shared this illustration before. I talked about it this past week with my men's uh, study group. I'll share it with you right now. A man and his wife were given the opportunity to come to the United States. After living here for a short period of time, however, the wife began to plead with her husband that they go back to the Islamic country of origin. Why? Why would a Christian couple want to leave the United States and go live in the presence of real and intense persecution? She explained to him, saying this, I quote, It's like there is a satanic lullaby playing here, and the Christians are asleep. I am afraid I am falling asleep. Please, let's go back. Which they did. That story is an urgent message that we should hear this morning. That woman wanted to go back to a dangerous environment to escape what she recognized as a greater danger. A danger to her faith. Spiritual lethargy. Indifference. That quote from someone outside of our context who was a Christian who walked in our cultural context, that should really stop us in our tracks. Do we see that same danger? How spiritually sleepy do we get? We're not just told to wake up. We're given this great nudge to spiritual joy. And the apostle says this, wake up because or for salvation is closer now than it was when you first believed. Salvation is closer now than it was when you first believed. It's not redundant. He's not saying the same thing twice. He's saying there was a moment when you first believed. There was a moment you were saved. But good news, salvation is closer now than it was when you were saved. How does that work? I've shared this with you before, and it's very important to me that you fully understand this. When Paul says salvation is closer than when you first believed, Paul is talking about final salvation. And there are three that he teaches about in the Bible. One salvation that he teaches about is to be delivered by God's grace from sin's penalty. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Romans 8.1. A declaration of being saved from sin's damnation. There's another one he talks about. He actually references it in Romans 7. So right before Romans 8.1. You're not guilty in Christ. But he talks about the other salvation. He says, that thing that I want to do, I don't always do. But that thing I know I shouldn't do, sometimes I do. That in itself is an expression of a person who has been saved from sin's power. You see, his heart says, I don't want to sin. His old heart didn't say that. His old heart said, I want to get away with sin. But his new heart said, I don't want to sin. I'm doing it, but I don't want to. 
That is salvation from sin's power. Sin had such bondage over us before the gospel's work in us that we were its slave. Salvation from sin's power. But we're not done yet. Because like Paul, I can say, the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I'm not supposed to do, I sometimes do. But that's not it. That's not what he's talking about here. He says salvation is closer. There's another one. It is to be saved from sin's presence. Like sin won't even be around. There will be no draw, no allure, no temptation, no pressure, no popularity to sin. It will be gone. And the apostle says here, wake up from sleepiness. Wake up. Have have spiritual vitality, energy, activity. Walk by faith. Because you're closer to that than you were back then. And it's true, right? Those of you who have believed, you're closer to the time when you will be with the Lord in heaven, free from sin's presence, than when you believed. It's true. Now, maybe in the room there's people who go, how much closer? (laughs) Closer. What yard marker? Walk by faith. Salvation is closer. We're motivated by the reality of being with God in glory. I really wanted to put in here, John, your quote about heaven and hell. I actually cut and pasted it in and then I had to take it out. You'll come ask me later or ask John. Ask John later. He's got a great quote about hell. Form a line. John will be right here. 200 and some people. Just You can ask him. Um, I, I think about our eyes. Like distraction and sleepiness being rubbed out of our eyes. And I think about hearing salvation's close. And my mind goes back to Isaiah 6. What did Isaiah see? The glory of God filling the temple. Shekinah glory. The glory that when it came next to you, you felt it. It it bumped you. The glory of God. And what does Isaiah say? I'm sleepy. I've been sleepy. My lips have been sleepy. The people around me are sleepy. And Paul's saying a similar thing. He's saying, see the glory of your salvation and stop being drowsy. I want that same thing. I want to see the glory of God and stop being drowsy. The apostle's not teaching us the day of the Lord had already happened, but he is stating correctly that it's closer than when we first believed. Listen to 2 Peter 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers are going to come in the last days, and they're going to scoff. Following after their own sinful desire, they're going to say things like, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. All of the instruction that we have from this paragraph comes out of the reality that Jesus Christ is coming again. Like there was a first, there will be a second. There will be a day of the Lord. We can't deny 
that our confidence in that promise that Jesus is going to return and reign, we can't deny that that confession is often used by the apostle in Scripture as a way to remind us to keep going, persevere. It's clear. Paul holds that glorious reality up and says, Look, Christian, don't sleep. This is real. And Christians go, yeah, it is real. Keep walking. I don't know where we are on the field. It's not my job to know where we are on the field. I have a blindfold on. And I walk by that faith. But he says this. The night is far gone and day is at hand. These are comforting words. The night is scary. It's often evil. Men love it because their deeds are evil and night somehow gives them a cover to do their evil. The sleepy. The sleepy. (laughs) This is is just so real and practical. Right? Like you have been in bed and the alarm has gone off and you have thought to yourself, I have plenty of time. Morning me makes better decisions than night me who set the alarm. Morning you doesn't make better choices than night you. Night you says, I'm going to need this much time to get up. Morning you says, ah, ten more minutes. Morning you is a liar. Night you is a good judge. And this happens. And we say, ah, I have more time. I have more time. I have more time. I have more time. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25, a parable of people who said, ah, we have more time. We have more time. He compares his return to a a wedding party, a bride and groom, and they're coming back. What would happen is uh, the groom would go and get the bride from her house, and they would spend time there. And then at some point, an undetermined amount of time, they would come back to his house. And when they came back, there was a whole wedding party who was there, and they were going to celebrate that they would got back. But it had taken them a little longer than they thought it was going to take. And so there are some young ladies there, and, and they have lamps, and they're getting ready, and they, they want to have the lamps and celebrate the return. And then they get tired, and they fall asleep, and ten of them. And then they hear announcement, like, hey, it's here! And five of them find out that they're not as ready as they had hoped to be. Jesus talked to us about being careful to not forget the night is almost over. So, so act like you really believe the sun's coming up. Live like you really think that this labor that we do in Christ is, is not in vain because there is a second coming. And, and I don't have to be tempted to lay up treasure in this because it's passing away. But instead I can lay up treasure in what will never pass away. And our Lord is going to return and he's going to reign forever and ever. Don't be sleepy. Paul doesn't explain exactly what the night is, but it's pretty clear here that it's referring to this moment in time that's passing away. This moment in time is dark and it is passing. But the consummation that he's just spoken about, it will pass away and the day will come. The day is at hand. That will last forever. He says... He says the night is far gone, which is a cool word. Uh, just, just say, what is that word? What is that word? 
I'm glad that you asked. So, like, have you ever taken a piece of metal and laid it out on maybe an anvil or something, and then you start pounding on that metal? And what happens to it? It seems to expand, right? So, that's really cool because he says, the night has been hammered out. You take that, you take that piece of soft metal and you lay it out, and then you start pounding it, and it goes from four inches to eight inches to maybe ten inches. The night has been adequately hammered out. Hmm. It's far gone. What? (laughs) The master builder has taken his hammer on his anvil, redemptive history, and he has thoroughly, carefully, perfectly hammered it out to its complete length. What is its complete length? Like, like what is the day of the Lord being kept by? Why isn't it here now? Well, Romans had already given that answer. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. It says, there's a full number of those who are not yet saved that will come in before the sun rises, before the day of the Lord. Peter talked about the judgment. He talked about the final day, the day when creation will be judged. In 2 Peter 3, he says, God is not slow to keep his promise, but he is patient. He has hammered the soft metal until it's at its accurate length, necessary length, And none of those will perish, but the day of the Lord, in fact, is going to come. All heaven and earth will pass away with a roar of fire. Heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done in it will be exposed. But God will keep his promise, and none of those will perish, but will come to life. So he says, don't sleep, wake up, The day is at hand. Listen, let me say this. Paul writes almost 2,000 years ago. And he says, night's over. And we might adopt the the criticism of the person who says, come on. Saying that for a long time and look, nothing. And that might secretly take root in us. And we might say not not to each other, not to a loved one, not to another Christian, but, but we might say to ourselves, Is it really? Is that going to happen? I want you to understand that when Paul says the day is at hand, I mean the day of the Lord was imminent 2,000 years ago. But here's what you have to see. After Christ, all history must be by nature an epilogue. 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 When I'm done preaching, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. And you're going to know when you hear that song, oh, that's the closing song. That's the epilogue. That means the end. After Christ, everything else is epilogue. So if you look back 2,000 years to the cross, everything after that is the end of the night. What does a person do when they're spiritually awake? Right, that's practical. Because I say, wake up, 
And now some of you literally just woke up. But I say, I say, wake up. And you say, Pastor, I don't, that's so ambiguous. I don't know what you mean. What do I do now? I want to give you an illustration of someone who was told to wake up. It was Abraham. Abraham believed God. And in Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. Abraham woke up, and verse 4 says, Abraham went like the Lord told him to. Abraham woke up and went. I don't know when the day of the Lord will be. I don't, I don't know. I guess I would tell you, I have a blindfold on, and I don't know what yard marker I'm on. And therefore, I can't tell you what yard marker you're on. But we know that nearly 2,000 years ago, the Spirit of the Lord led Paul to tell the church to not be sleepy like they could rest or push snooze. One author said, I don't know where we are, but I know that every day we camp a little closer to home. Our salvation is nearer than when we'd first believed. And I know that we're tempted to look around at yard markers. And I would just ask you to not be sleepy, but to be active. To be active. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. We would go back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and look at verse 14 through 22. The day of the Lord is a reality. It is coming. Night is far spent. And if we go back to, let's, let's go back. This is how I'm going to end us today. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. What will we do as the people of God when we are convinced that the day of the Lord is at hand and the night is far spent? Verse 14. We urge you, this is our, this is our prompting, admonish the idle. Okay, there's some people in your fellowship that are idle. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just not doing anything. Would you admonish them? Would you say, hey, don't, don't be sleepy. Worship the king. Would you encourage the faint-hearted? There are some people who haven't been idle. They've been active, and they're discouraged. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Don't repay evil for evil. Always seek to do good to each other. Rejoice all the time. Pray without end. Give thanks in every circumstances. In every circumstance, for this is the will of God. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Test everything. Hold fast what's good and abstain from all kinds of evil. That's not sleepy. That's going toward the light. Persevering. Maybe I don't know what yard marker I'm on. 
Seems like it would help, doesn't it? If I could tell you, you've gone 99 yards, how are you going to manage today? Ooh, like this is the last yard? You're telling me Monday is the day of the Lord? No, I'm not. It'd sell a lot of books, but I'm not. But if, if I could tell you that, how do you live out the next 24 hours? Not sleepy. So let's walk by faith. That I don't know what yard marker I'm on, but the night is far spent. I can see the light of the sun in his return. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you've given us this promise. It encourages our soul. In your providence, you've led our faith family to walk through this book and to come to this point right now. And so, Lord, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, you give this instruction because we believe in the day of the Lord, because we walk by faith. We do all sorts of good and selfless and worshipful things with our stewardship of life. So, God, as your word has been delivered to our heart, I pray that we would be changed, that we would be stirred from any sort of slumber that might be in our life. God, I know that this call is to those who are not dead in their sin, but are sometimes sleepy in their behavior. But God, I know as I preach, there are people who are dead in their sin. And so any sort of call to them to be active is impossible. And so I pray as your word is preached and as your spirit reigns, that there would be people in our fellowship who would see the, the wonderful provision to their need of Jesus Christ. Sinners who are standing in opposition to God in their rebellion. But know that Jesus Christ is the mediator because he gave himself, would usher them into the adoption and the family of God. And so, Lord, I pray that as we talk about walking by faith, that there are people here who would have the faith of salvation to look to Christ. And then for your church, God, I pray for us. We are tempted to look at yard markers. We are tempted to see the darkness of our moment and maybe wonder if day is really coming. So continue to nourish and feed us. Continue to use us to encourage each other to love and good works. And all the more as the day of the Lord approaches. In his name we pray, amen.